So we're in a series called He Restores My Soul. Last week we talked about anxiety. Um, we learned a lot of good stuff from that, and I want to encourage you once again that there are people out in the booths that um, there's some information for you. In fact, our speaker's going to be out there in between services. But I also want to make sure I take time to welcome all of those who are watching online. And I'm going to ask those of you who are watching online, would you please do me a favor? Would you please share this with others? You know, one of the things that we know is that we never know how God is going to use something. And I believe that right now that you know, all of us here, we know someone who needs to hear what we're going to talk about today as far as depression. It's something that we all dealt with in some form or fashion. But if you would share this with somebody else, we would greatly appreciate it, and God would be using you to do a great work. So I have Gina Went Blazing. Is a doctor? No. Well, I'm just going to call you that. Is that right? (laughs) And then we have Mark Potter, Coach Mark Potter, and his wife, Nanette. Nanette is joining us today. Last week, I felt like Mark needed some help, so I asked his wife to join us. So thank you so much for that, for helping us out Thank you. Okay? That's what I do. I don't know what it is. You just bring out the worst of me, dude. I'm sorry. Anyways, we, Mark and I go way back. Well, today, we're talking about depression. And, um, you know, it's, I've heard a lot of people talk about um, that whole scenario of moving from anxiety that's a slippery slope and moving into depression. And I think maybe one of the things that maybe I would ask you, Gina, just to kind of start us off with is that, so what is depression and when does depression become an issue? Right. Uh, Well, we consider depression a mood disorder. Some of the symptoms of depression, and I have my list here just so that I don't get off track today. Um, uh, Sadness, it could be anxiety, loss of interest or pleasure in things feeling hopelessness, irritability, worthless, decreased energy, fatigue, uh, difficulty sleeping, sleeping too much, maybe not enough, changes in appetite. Um, It can also go into body aches and pains, and then the ultimate would be um, suicidal thoughts and attempts. Okay, so I think probably just from listening to that, and Mark, jump in on here is that, I think that all of us at some point in time have experienced some type of depression, haven't we? I mean, we get there's, there's life and we go through the blues and things like that. And that kind of maybe gives us a precursor of what, but I guess the question maybe is this. So at what point in time do you realize that, well, you know, maybe I need some, some help in this area? Yeah, sometimes it, I think it's known as situational depression versus clinical depression. Okay. And what I always say is there are those ups and downs in life that we all go through. It could be any one of these symptoms. Um, It could be that you have a project at work and it just causes you to have to stay up late and so you're a little tired. Maybe you get a little irritable. You may be a stay-at-home parent and have a sick kiddo. So we go through these periods where we would call those the normal ups and downs. We just, we, we fine tune and we tighten it up and then we feel better Um, sooner than later. Then you might have things like a divorce, loss of a job. Uh, You're on a performance improvement plan. You may lose somebody to death that you love. And those get a little bit more intense. Um, And that's very common. Uh, We would would say that when we're grieving um, and something like that happens, of course we're gonna have those types of, of responses to those life events. 
And then it, it might go a little further, and I always say, gosh, if, you, if you're not regrouping after a period of time and you know yourself best and you're getting, experiencing more and more symptoms, maybe they're getting more intense, maybe um, your irritability is getting more intense and you're not able to live life like you once did, um, you're not functioning the way you once did, and you're even seeing the response from those around you. Um, it's time to, to get help. Okay. So I've got a couple of questions that are coming to my mind, but I want to kind of repeat what you said there is that, um, so there are some, there's some evidence that is occurring that maybe tells us we need to get some help. And so the thing I'm asking was that, so for family and friends who are with somebody, is there verbiage that we should look for? Is there body language that we should look for that will kind of help us out a little bit? Mark, you want to? Well, there's definitely verbiage. I mean, there's different things that different people say that, that uh, you can pick up on that may not be the norm. Um, so what would be some of those words? Well, I mean, many times when people are going into depression, you, you know, you, you described a lot of the symptoms that, that I felt. I mean, I, I felt every one of those symptoms when I was going through severe depression. And, you know, m my wife will be able to probably allude to this a little bit more because I think I was saying things like, um, I can't do this anymore. And let me, let me go back a step before I say that. <clears throat> I didn't say I can't do this anymore up until the point in time in which it was almost too late. So there are certain people, maybe with my type of personality, that won't say a thing about it. Matter of fact, try to protect it to the best of our abilities so that, you know, I don't want my wife to think that, you know, I'm, I'm weak. I don't want somebody else to think I'm weak. So in my wife's case, she would, and again, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but she started to see physical things. So I would start to be in my chair at home and I would start to have tears roll down my face. And, you know, my wife and I, as we talked about last week, we've now been married for 36 years, but at that time we'd known each other for 30 years and she'd seen me cry one time in 30 years. And while I was starting to really spiral out of control with my thoughts and depression, uh, I was being sitting in my chair at home and tears would roll down my face. And, 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 she, what's wrong with you? Well, you know what? I, I'm just a little bit emotional. I'll, I'll be fine. And still wouldn't tell my wife exactly what was going on. So um, there's a lot of, I think, words that people say that uh, are pretty maybe obvious to us if we just listen a little closer. But there's, in many cases, I think it's body language. It's it's more emotional, it's more, you know, in my case, I started to sleep, you know, and during basketball seasons, I, you know, you know, I slept for about four hours a night. We talked about that last week, but while I was going through depression, I couldn't get enough sleep. We were talking about that prior to coming out this morning. Uh, you, you can't, what was, the, what was the phrase you used? Um, you know, oh, you're when you're- you on the spot. I don't... Yeah, I'm putting her on the spot, but-, but She you, used so you, many. Yeah, well, yeah. You just can't get enough sleep. There's no amount of sleep that's going to take you out of depression. It's, so. a, it's a type of fatigue you can't sleep off. Yeah, yes. there you go. Um, and, and that was the, the position that I was in, was that I, you know, couldn't get enough sleep. And, and I thought, man, I just, I'm, I'm even more tired now than I was prior to getting, you know, eight or nine hours of sleep. And uh, I was exhausted. 
So, so I noticed that Mark said a couple things. One of the things he said is there's verbiage that happens when it's too late. Mm -hmm. But I also noticed that he said he used the phrase to protect. And is that the right phrase or is the right phrase maybe to hide? Probably a little of both. Okay. It's, it's that protection because you have a persona, as many do, that you kind of go, I can do this. I can do this. And so you want to protect that, but it's, I mean, in essence, it's hiding the truth of what's brewing underneath. Okay. Yeah. And, it, and that's a great, uh, an example of, I can't do this anymore, um, because I've heard that one a lot. And even prior to that, it's, you know, feeling overwhelmed. Um, you know, I just don't feel like I can cope anymore. I can't concentrate. I'm not being, you know, I, I'm unable to make decisions like I used to make. Um, and just knowing the body language, like you said, it's not just what people say, but we know ourselves best and those around us know us. And when it's different, um, then you know yeah. that something's going on. And they kind of want to drift off and be by themselves yes. a lot. Yes, isolation's huge. And that's, that's a sign yep. right there that huge. something's not right. Yeah. That's a huge sign, yeah. isolation. And it's so easy to do. You had asked me at one point, why do people isolate when they're depressed? And it's the fatigue, I think, that causes the majority of it. There's a lot of little reasons in addition to that, but I think you're just so worn out. Um, you don't want to have any other extra stimulation of people or places or extra responsibilities. Yeah. Well, the way I described that when I was in the midst of, so when I, when the, my depression started and I, you would call it situational depression, it was at the beginning of the basketball season uh, that particular year. And, you know, I always, you know, I would go to practice and I would, you know, practice for two hours and, you know, you guys can probably, you know, hear the intensity in my voice here, but I was always intense for two hours of practice. I mean, my guys knew if you, when it stepped between the lines, it's time to go to work. And one thing that I always say is that I, during the time that I was going through severe depression, I was doing a great job of faking them out, but I could not find the passion that I had always had in all my other years of coaching. So I had this empty void and um, I, I always remember faking them out, you know, for two hours and then walking upstairs at Newman University where I coached and going into my office and closing my door because I didn't want to be around people. And, and I didn't want extra stimulation because the, the chemical imbalance really affects just the um, worthless, hopeless, um, you know what, I'm not confident anymore. Right. Um, I'd been a head coach for 19 years and you know, we'd won 25 games the year before and went to the national tournament. And this is, a, this is literally a year later. So nothing on paper says that I should go through severe depression. And I think that's another thing that we all should keep in mind is that not always is it something traumatic that happens, but obviously if something does traumatic, uh, happens traumatic, it's going to create uh, a major issue. But I think my wife would be able to maybe describe a little bit more um, some of the signs that she saw. Um, and then when we, when we speak to all the different groups that we do, we always use the word denial. You know, you talked about hiding. <laughs> um, Sometimes it's denial. It's, it's, you know what, I'm not really depressed. I don't really need help. Uh, I can get through this. Um, all the things that I was taught by my mother and father and that they were taught, you know, by my grandparents. So, uh, you know, I think my wife, you know, she's, by the way, she talks all the time. So I'm not really sure why she hasn't said a word yet. Maybe that's because we have controlled the stage this morning. I don't know. Mark's in trouble. <laughs> no. So before we get to that, I want to do one other thing, and that is that 
So is there a difference between people who are depressed that have a chemical imbalance and people who are depressed that don't have a chemical imbalance? I, th I think so. I, you know, and that, that's a great question. And I think it's that situational depression, those normal ups and downs um, that we experience. And then when it goes into what we call the clinical depression, because we can diagnose it, it fits into a criteria. Um, and, you know, and then that's where medication can help as well. Um, but yeah, th there's a difference there. Um, and it's when it just keeps ensuing and keeps getting worse that you kind of look at that and go, hmm, maybe there's something going on chemically. Okay. So part of it is, is that as, as we're working, I mean, it's sometimes depression comes from a series of of things that happen in our lives. Mm -hmm. And we keep pushing them and pushing away and pushing away. Eventually, the brain says, I have no more power to push away, right? right. And right. that's when problems begin to deal. Right. Um, and, and I can't remember if I went through this uh, at our last session, but you know, you keep encountering problems and, and, and issues and, and you know, loss of energy, fatigue. Well, along with that goes a lot of thinking, right? We are thinking all day long, and I think one of the recent things I read said we have over a thousand thoughts a day, right? And the more we think about how worried we are, anxious we are, tired we are, frustrated, depressed, um, that does something in the brain. And not to get too technical, but there's a thing called, uh, well, there's a protein, a BDNF, a brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And what we're finding is that the more thoughts, repetitive thoughts that we have that are from more of a suffering, negative, anxiety, depression, um, that particular protein starts to reduce. When that protein reduces, um, it causes atrophy or shrinking of some very important parts of the brain, but it also causes an enlargement of the emotional part of the brain. So therein lies this particular protein that's so important. We call it fertilizer. Um, it fertilizes the neurons, which helps the connections in the brain work really well and very healthily. Um, and so that's part of what can take place. Okay. And there are all kinds of things you can do for it to replenish it. Right. So um, let, let, me, let me go one step farther and talk about our kids right now. Mm -hmm. um, I think part of it is, is, is part of it why we are where we are because of the way we've been brought up. In mm -hmm. other words, by I mean, we, we don't talk about things, we sweep them under the rug. If it happens in the family, if it's in the closet, you leave it in the closet. And so that creates problems. And now, how can we help our kids, our grandchildren, how can we help them so, because that's why we're going through all this depression, right? right? So right. how can we help them? I mean, the worst thing for me to say is my grandson, my granddaughter say, be a big boy. Big boys don't cry. That's exactly. not a good saying, right? Right, no, exactly. Not. Why are you crying? You shouldn't be crying. There's nothing to be crying about. That was the generation I grew up in. And in my family, I was the crier. So it was like everybody <laughs> would shake their head. Um, sorry, mom, if you're listening. Um, I look at that, I, I say it's the bugs of the generation. Bug stands for bad, ugly, good. Um, every generation has bad stuff. We can learn from the bad. The ugly would be that toxic stuff, um, addictions, abuse, um, 
And the good, every generation has that too, and we foster that. And so I think if every generation could help the next generation with those things, it just keeps getting better and better. And I think that's the intent. And I always say parents do the best they can with what they have. And I, I firmly, sincerely, with every fiber that I have, believe that. Um, but I think it's with our children when, when they're younger, because this is where we start developing what I call that emotional pathway or the emotional highway. Um, let's help them do that. Let's look at their little upbringing and their little emotions that are happening as a, an opportunity to teach, an opportunity to connect and attach with them. Um, John Gottman is an author and a therapist out there, a PhD, and he's done some wonderful work with something we call emotion coaching. You should like that. It's got the word coach in it. Um, and for parents, um, it's a pretty thick book, but it's, there's five steps to it. And I think a lot of it is emotional intelligence, you know, learning about our emotions, learning how to um, label and identify. You were telling me a story about um, somebody that you know, that a little person that can identify um, their emotions, and that's wonderful. I mean, that's like that, a really great step. When, when our kiddos, even through adolescence, um, or what I call madolescence, um, when they start struggling, it's just having those conversations to get to know them, to say, hey, what's going on? Let's just talk about it. So when your grandson or your granddaughter or your child comes to you and they're crying or they're upset, maybe you know they've gone through a difficult time. Mm -hmm. What's what, do the, we do? what should we say to them? Yeah, it would be things like, and keep in mind, let me just, I do this in the therapy. I, I always tell all the parents, I'd ha I have no children. I just know the research, so I know what works. Um, but it would be things like um, just loving on them, holding them, connecting with them, um, using their language. You know, the first thing that comes to mind is, oh, we've got a boo-boo if they've fallen down. Um, if they've had, maybe a, you have a situation where kiddos are fighting, and somebody hits somebody else and they start crying. Um, it's comforting them, it's meet, meeting them where they are, letting them talk about it, um, and just having that conversation where they know you love them and you're always going to be there and you're always going to listen to them. If they're older, at some point, then we talk to them about, you know, what could we do next time? Next time that happens, um, how could we think about it? How can we prepare for next time? So I, th I think some of those are the, you know, love them and listen to them and, you know, be supportive. You know, one of the things I want to talk about with that is, is that was really easy for me with our daughter, what she just said. But with my son, ah, <laughs> and suck it up, let's go, like, come on, do what you do, right? And when I was going through depression, and my son, our son, was a freshman in college. I'm gonna let you speak, honey. <laughs> what exactly did he say when he came home and he saw me and the doctors had told me I had to stay home and I couldn't coach my team for five, you know, almost six weeks. What did Zach say, our son? Did you hear he said he's gonna let me speak? Did you hear that? I did, just saying. Um, <laughs> I yes. would have never said that, but you yes. know, that's, that's good. You picked up on that. Yeah, I that heard boy. it. Come on. I will remember. Um, of course, our daughter lived at home during the time that he got very ill, and so she was kind of watching it. But our son had moved away, and he was, he was attending Wichita State and living in the dorm, 
and he, when he would come home and Mark would be in the chair just laying there and not really responsive, not talking to us, he would take me in the other room and he'd say, Mom, you get in there and you tell Dad to get up. You tell him, Potter's fight. We don't lay down like that. We get up and we fight. And I kept telling him, honey, we're fighting. We really are fighting. You just have to know we're fighting in a little different way. So it was a very difficult time for our son to understand. Our daughter, she lived through it. And I think he was on the outside looking in a little bit differently. So that kind of brings us into the next thing I want to talk about. And I want to hear from you, Nanette. And that is that, so when Mark went through his anxiety and his depression, um, Mark wasn't about to take himself to the doctor. And I think there's probably a lot of spouses or individuals here who know somebody in their family who's going through a difficult time and are just trying to figure out, what do I do? You know, their kids are coming to them and, hey, what's wrong with mom or what's wrong with dad? And, and just kind of what you said, like what Zach said, but, you know, what were you going through as a spouse, you know, as a mom, and you're seeing your husband go through this I think one of the best things I can always say, and you know, Mark and I, we speak, we go to crowds and we talk about this situation and we talk about our life story and we just tell people how we're trying to empower people to go get help. That's the whole goal behind it is that don't live like that, go get some help. There is help available and you can get better. When we were going through this, um, you know, Mark's quite a bit bigger than I am. And so I can't really make him do anything. But I did know some really, really large men because of Mark's job. And so when he was so, so ill, I felt like I had done everything in my power to make a doctor's appointment, to make a counseling appointment. I was managing the team. I was managing the media. I was doing all of those things, just running the family. I was still trying to teach second grade. And I was the cheer coach at the time. So I had a lot on my plate. And I was overwhelmed. And I think that's one thing to remember is that when one person in your family is ill, it impacts everyone. And so if you think, gosh, this isn't about them, this is, I'm not doing, it's just all about me, that's just not true. It impacts your whole family. Now, on a Sunday afternoon, I called the behavioral health number on the back of our insurance card. And I got the number of the counseling centers that would take our insurance. And I then called on Monday morning. I got us a doctor's appointment. I did everything I thought was in my power to fix this problem because he wasn't going to fix this problem. He was too sick. When I look back at it, if he was having a heart attack, I would have acted. If he had a diabetic problem, I would have acted. But I let it go too long and didn't act until it was almost too late. And he had suicidal thoughts. He was thinking of driving his car off the road. And he didn't tell me that right away. I didn't know that first. But when I came home, I went to school that morning. I had to get my things ready. I went home and I said to him, I said, you know, we're going to go to the doctor. I have everything planned. We're going to fix this. We're going to get it taken care of. He was crying and he was laying in his chair and he looked up at me and he said, I'm not going and you can't make me. And I'm just going to say that made me really mad. And I might be just a little bit spunky. And so I thought of that really big man that I knew. <laughs> and one of them was his assistant coach. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say his name, but he was about 6'6", six, six, weighed about 
280. And his face came into my head. And I looked at Mark and I said, you're going to get up and you're going to walk to the car because if you don't get up and walk to the car, I'm going to call Chris. I did say his name. And he's going to pick you up and he's going to shove you in the car. You can go by getting shoved or you can walk because I don't care how you get in that car. And he must have believed that I would do that. (laughs) (laughs) Because he put his hands up like this and he said, you know, I'll I'll walk. (laughs) And I said, that's a really good decision. It was a great decision. (laughs) I'm in awe. (laughs) That's incredible. That's good. But you know what? You do what you have to do, don't you? I'm not saying that everybody should yell at their family member. But I do, when I speak to crowds all the time, I always say it's time for us, bystanders, to get in the game. We're going to have to act. We can't just talk about it. We can't be afraid that he's going to be upset with me because he wasn't that happy with me. But we have to fix the problem. He was too ill to fix the problem. And again, if he had a heart attack, I would work to fix the problem because that's going to be deadly. But his depression was also going to be deadly if I didn't act. So I want to just ask the people that are bystanders to get in the game. We have to do something. We have to get help. If they won't get help, we have to get help for us. That's part of the problem, to get to the solution. Okay, so Mark, um, as you were walking down this road, and I know you had had some thoughts that you probably never thought that you would have. What was, what was that like? What, what, what happened? I mean, did that scare you? How, how serious were you about that? And Nanette, what was that like when you found out that he was having those thoughts? It, it, was, uh, it was extremely scary. Um, you know, we were getting ready to go into that basketball season, and I was trying to make sure that, you know, I was getting my team ready to, to go for the season like I always did. And um, yet, I had incredible turmoil in my, in my mind, you know, with the stress, and it was just another level. And when I started to have suicidal thoughts, Uh, you know, my family came into my mind and, and, uh, you know, it was just, um, it was a lot of turmoil, I guess is the only way I can describe it in my brain. And then, and then, you know, and so the severe depression had, you know, I'd spiraled out of control with my thoughts and then, uh, the anxiety level was kind of a combination of just going to another level at that point. And, and so uh, the only way I can describe it, I guess, is that, you know, I never thought, as you said, I would ever be in that position. Anybody that ever knew me before would have never said, they would have said, no way Coach Potter's going through depression. And, uh, you know, when we felt the calling to actually tell the media why I hadn't been with my team, um, that changed our lives, you know, like, because that vulnerability, you know, that you talk about with your children uh, and your grandchildren, 
just being honest with them and being open with them and let them know, you know what? We struggle. We're human beings. We are broken. And uh, when you do that, it empowers them to be able to know it's okay to get help. And as my wonderful wife said, that is, that is why we do what we do. Yeah. It is why we speak to all the different people that we speak to. Yeah. So yeah. Um, hopefully that answers the question. Yeah. So, so let's talk about the remedy. His name is Jesus. That's the big part of it, isn't it? Yeah. So tell me, you know, it's interesting how the Bible tells us that he, rest- he restores my soul. He leads me by paths of righteousness for his namesake. So we hear all these things he, that we get from the shepherd. But then he allows us, the next line is, and yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And so we've got to stay close to the shepherd. But the other part of it is we've got to keep walking with him. The shepherd never stays where he is. We've got to keep walking with him. And when we drift away, that's when we get in trouble. So tell me, how did, how did Jesus show up in your life in this? Yeah, you can tell my wife's like, I need to say something here. Again. <laughs> I do. So we'll, we'll let her I'm, talk. I'm feeling the urge here. He's asking me the question. She's going to answer it. <laughs> As Mark was spiraling out of control, it took me a long time to figure out what was going on because he was always gone during basketball season. He always didn't sleep as much. He always didn't come home to eat, so he lost a little bit of weight. So it took me a while to figure out how bad this was getting. And then I would walk into the living room, and he would be in front of his chair on his knees, and he would be praying and just calling out to God and just saying, I need you, and I need help. And... he was just, he was, you know, running to the shepherd, as Bill said one day. He was running to the Father. And he kept saying, I can't find my faith. I just need to give this up to Jesus more. And I kept telling him, if Jesus wanted to fix this, he could. He could reach down right now and say, you're done. Not going to happen anymore. And I've seen that happen. But Jesus also has put people like me in place to say, you are going to get in the car put Gina here to help. He's put the doctor here to help. Mark was in the word more. Mark was praying more. We were all crying out and saying, we need help. And I think God did give us help. He did lead us to the right people. So I didn't act on my own. I think God led me to act. Yeah, yeah. And, and one of the things that um, we're talking about being in isolation and, you know, um, so when, when, when I did go to the doctor, not on my own, but when my wife made me, um, <laughs> the doctor said, okay, coach, you're severely depressed. We're going to put you on antidepressants, which by the way, was a savior for me. Um, and then go to a counselor once a week. And then I went home, you know, to get better. And he said, I'm going to, you're not going to be able to coach your team for a while. And uh, so I missed eight games and 28 practices. But those first three weeks that I was at home, I didn't answer the phone. I didn't talk to anybody. I told her not to tell anybody about why I was at home. My team didn't even know why I wasn't with them. Only my personal family and my assistant coaches and the athletic director at Newman knew, and and my personal family. And um, didn't answer the phone one time until back in those days we had actual – Phone's in the house. (laughs) And the phone rang, and I 
for whatever reason, I went over and looked at the caller ID, and it was one of my players' dads. He was a pastor. I may have mentioned this last week, but when you ask, you know, what God does in certain situations, so my player's dad says, Coach, and I didn't even know how he knew because the players didn't, did not know us. As far as I knew, my players didn't know why I was at home. And that pastor said to me, Coach, you know it's not your lack of faith. He said he has a great friend that's been a pastor of a, of a church that's a membership of over 4,000 people that has struggled off and on with severe depression his entire adult life. And so I tell you that because I believe, I don't know why I answered the phone. <laughs> it was the only phone call I took in like literally the first four weeks that I was at home. And he was just trying to remind me that, uh, because I think he knew, you know, that I was struggling with feeling like I had lack of faith and, and all of those things. And, and, and let me make something perfectly clear. Um, it's a great thing to be reading the Bible and getting in the word. And it's a great thing to be praying. And we all need to do more of it. Um, but sometimes I also think as Christians, we, we think that is the only answer when God is actually putting other people in your place, in your life, to help you with the process. So, so when you look back, you see God's fingerprints all over this. All over it. And then from that now, you're traveling all over the country speaking. And last week, right here at our church, you connected with a man and spent the week on the phone with him and walked him off a tightrope. Yes, I mean, it's, a, it's amazing, you know, the amount of people that you run into that are struggling and, and uh, you know, I just want to, there's one comment that, that I had this week when I was in discussion and the comment was, what do you mean chemical imbalance? I probably had said it four or five times in our conversation. And he said, I finally heard you coach. I finally heard what you said. You said chemical imbalance, didn't you? I said, yeah, many people struggle with that. That's okay. <laughs> What's not okay, and my wife always says this when we speak, is the only wrong thing that you can do is to do nothing at all. Amen. Very good. Gene, is there anything that you would want to add to anything that was said here this morning? I do. I have one comment, and I, I kept getting this, you know, a couple things. Um, sometimes it's in our suffering that we go to God, and I don't think it's ever, ever wasted. I think the Bible says that. Um, Randy Alcorn, just from a resource perspective, Randy Alcorn's a, a great theologian, has written some wonderful books. And in, I think it was in, they're all 500 pages, so they're really big books. But um, in his book, If God is Good, it's all about suffering. There was one sentence in there when I read it the first time, um, and he said, God will allow what he hates in order to ultimately get what is good. Because sometimes we wonder, why doesn't he intervene? And I listen to this story, and I think, wow, what he has done now, the devil may have meant it for evil, but God used it for good and good and gooder and goodest. So, yeah. I might finish uh, my portion today with this. <clears throat> After the, 
we decided to go public, and that's a whole other story. If, if you want to hear it, you'll have to hire us to speak at your place. But, <laughs> but after I was, we'd received so many people that gave us feedback, and we, we estimate over 400 people after the article came out in the paper contacted us in about a 48-hour period, over half of which we didn't even know. And then I, I received a, a letter from a 17-year-old boy about a week and a half after that article came out. And in the letter, he said, Coach Potter, you don't know me, but I read the article in the paper. And he said, I, I knew that I had some of the symptoms that you had discussed in the article. And he said, after one really difficult night, he said, I, I finally had to tell my mom and dad. And uh, he, said, he said, I'm writing this letter to you to tell you thanks for saving my life. I, that's when our lives changed, you know, it was like, oh my goodness, you know, when, so when I say be vulnerable, I mean, just sharing it with one person could potentially save their life. Yep. Hallelujah. 